Thanks for downloading Looking Glass, a podcast series from the Institute of Physics about what science can learn from other perspectives in society. I'm Angela Saini, a science journalist and author who looks particularly at how science sits in the world, the politics of it, the funding of it, the biases in it. In this series, I'm hosting discussions about some of the major challenges in our world, like the climate crisis and big data. I'll be inviting experts from different disciplines, including some physicists, to share their work and experience and see what we can learn from these conversations as we look to the future. In this episode, we'll be discussing power, privilege and cancel culture. Social media has become a vital tool for organisations to communicate with the public and humanise their image. But increasingly, they're also being asked to speak up about social issues such as racial inequality. As these institutions and other organisations step out of their comfort zones and onto social media, how should they be navigating this new world of communication? My guests today are Cherie Acheson and Brenda Trinaudin. Cherie is a Sri Lankan-born Irish computer scientist and global director of diversity, equity and inclusion at PECON. She's previously held roles including head of diversity and inclusion at Monzo and consulting inclusion lead at Deloitte. She argues that the best strategy for us all is allyship, where we all take ownership of the issues and stand up to bias and discrimination. She's all for having difficult conversations. Alongside Cherie, we have someone who's worked in this space for many years, Brenda Trinaudin, CBE, the global co-chair of the 30% Club, which campaigns to increase gender diversity at board and management level. She's also a partner in PwC UK within their people consulting practice. Brenda argues that there's a commercial imperative here too for diversity because if companies don't think about it now, they'll pay the price in the future. So, if we take a look at council culture, it can feel new to some of us. But of course, the act of boycotting a brand or an institution really isn't that new at all. So, I began by asking Brenda, what is different now? I mean, A, I think it's just a new term to describe something, as you say, that's been going on for a long time. And I, I think the difference now is the reason for the, the boycott or, or for the cancelling. Because, you know, if, if I think about one of the first examples I saw of this, um, and this is going to really age me, but the, the Nestle bottle feeding boycott that started in the late 70s in the US and, and went on to Europe because of their aggressive marketing of um, infant formula in underdeveloped markets where they didn't have clean water. And, and you know, so that that was happening and has been happening um, for, for a long time. But I think now that the swap around about people calling out companies and organizations and leaders about things like a lack of diversity or, you know, looking into the past, you know, the, the current trend about, you know, trying to find people who had anything to do with, with the slave trade and, and and so I, I think just the, the, the topic is different. I think it's the same type of thing, but the topic is different. And I guess the difference as well is social media. It means the speed at which these things can happen and the, the people that can have a voice. And in some cases, a disproportionately small number of very loud people with big social media followings 
really influencing things. So I think that's the big difference as well. I mean, in some ways, cancel culture or however you want, boycotting, whatever you want to call it, is gloriously democratic, really, because it's the power of the individual to say, I'm not going to buy this, I'm not going to support this organisation or this person anymore because I don't believe in them, uh, their politics is something I don't agree with, or they're doing something wrong. And really, as individual consumers, that's as much power as we often have. We don't, you know, we're not sitting in boardrooms, many of us, we don't have that voice at the table. So in that sense, can it be a good thing? Cherie, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I and I definitely agree with the, the point from Brenda around how social media has changed the the way we hold businesses and people accountable, because everybody or anybody that wants one, for the most part, can have a Twitter account, a LinkedIn account, whatever it might be. And that gives you a voice that previously you would not have had. And I think what's important with that is, is that very often in the past and certainly before the wave of social media, those being able to feed back to, you know, influential people were only other influential people, which may, you know, you could argue would create quite an echo chamber of the people you hear from. And you don't have that now when everyone in society is able to view what you're doing from the lenses in which it impacts them on. And that is different. Um, Do I think that there needs to be a balance um, on how people deliver that kind of feedback, ensuring that it doesn't veer into harassment and bullying and so on? Yes, I think that's incredibly important. Um, And there's great work done by, for example, Glitch, UK um, with Sei Akawo, who is working to actively put in regulations and policies in place to make sure that we view, for example, online harassment and bullying in the same way that we view it in person. Because if we think cancel culture or accountability online is how I view it, certainly, is going to go away, you'll be very mistaken considering how, how much um, we rely on social media and its impact. I just want to look at this issue of scientific institutions and universities, which often use social media as a way of mediating communication with the public, but also as as a means of signalling their values, their principles, of letting people know what they care about. Um, should we welcome that, these kind of big academic institutions, which for a long time have felt very shut off, like Ivory Towers, quite distanced from the public, now suddenly being so much more accessible and we can actually know what they're feeling in a way. Sheree, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I I absolutely welcome that. And I think what's important here is uh, you've touched on it yourself, this ivory tower approach of something that some people are are warranted access to and other people are not, um, which is ultimately exclusive. We are ultimately baking exclusion into our processes, but also who do we then decide is worthy of listening to after um, the fact. And what I think is really important from these institutions, etc., is that level of transparency, that level of vulnerability that allows different people to engage in a way that is really authentic to them. Um, these institutions have a huge amount of power and privilege, and it would be good if that was being used um, for the betterment of not just the people already involved with them, but actually the wider societal groups that exist. Uh, But do you see any pitfalls here for organisations which historically have been quite shut off, that have taken their time to craft a press release, for instance, before airing an opinion and now suddenly having to do it very quickly? Mistakes can happen, can't they? Yeah, mistakes will happen, absolutely, because at the end of the day, whether you are a big institution or not, there are people and people are 
you know, error prone. Every single one of us is error prone. And what I think is also important here is that when you are going through the process of, you know, crafting a response, etc., you best be ready for people and some people to disagree or to provide different viewpoints. Now, what's important when that happens is how you respond. Now, do you immediately shut down? Do you double down or do you sit back? Do you listen? Do you reassess and then move forward? And I think that's what's really important here, as opposed to just shutting down the conversation, which ultimately means you've created another ivory tower that some people can't reach. What was was that the point in the first place? I don't think so. So it's important to understand what comes after you press send. I just want to look at social media because social media plays an outsized role now in how we relate to institutions, how we interact with organizations. Is that a good thing or can it be damaging in some ways? Brenda, what are your thoughts? Well, I guess the answer is always it depends, of course, isn't it? It has brought a wonderful diversity of voice in some cases, you know, to the discussion. And I think things like the Me Too movement, you know, and 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 many others have really benefited hugely from the ability to raise voices. So so it's it's you know, it can be incredibly helpful and it can be incredibly negative if you look at what's going on in the US and, you know, that the, the power of social media there. Once again, free speech and debate is great, but it seems in some cases debate is just being shut down by the loudest voices. Cherie, what what are your thoughts on all this? Yeah, I, I think it's context is really important and doing your research and doing, you know, above a clickbait title, going further than what you see the title as being on an article before you respond is really, really important here. And Brenda is right. It's very easy to have a knee-jerk reaction now because everything and how we did digest media is into these lovely little nuggets. Um, but a nugget isn't the full story. And, and it's really important that us as, I guess, digital citizens really go beyond just um, accepting what you hear in that first one to two sentences. Um, What I do think is important is that that way that we are able to give voices to those that have not had voices in the past. And I do agree that one of the problems as well with social media is that um, those who speak the loudest are heard the most. And we've seen that happen over and over again. And it's really important that we spend the time understanding the implications of who we listen to, why we listen to them, and how we can, I guess, disrupt our own thinking and the own echo chambers that we may have in ourselves. So do you think then that social media users are being responsible enough in terms of educating themselves on the background of the issues that they're getting so passionate about? No, no, I absolutely don't, because I think the point is that people view online communication as a different communication, even to the one we're having right now. Yes, we're not in the same room, but you can see me, you can hear the tone of my voice, you can see my hand movements on whether I'm smiling or not. Um, When you write a communication, it's very, very different. And what I think is important here is that people understand that text communication is as important and potentially aggressive or violent as in person. We've also seen similar issues, for example, in different toolings that organizations use, such as Slack, where almost all communication is through text. And then there's issues around tone and what someone really means because you're not seeing that person. Now, what I think is important is a sense of accountability for every person that also does have one of those accounts that is actively putting their perspectives, views, feedback online to remember that you can disagree with someone 
and it be, you know, appropriate. Um, but you can also remember that you have a sense of accountability too, to not add to a dog pile, to not do this in a way that is aggressive or violent, because I personally don't think that that's, that's what we need to do. I mean, one of the issues with social media, of course, is that even though it is very democratic, as you say, anybody can use Twitter if they want to. At the same time, I mean, one of the reasons I left Twitter and Facebook over the last year is because women and minorities get a huge amount of abuse and it does quiet some voices rather than others and amplifies certain people who don't face those issues. And is that a problem then? Brenda, what are your thoughts? You know, of of course, I think... The way that underrepresented groups often get, you know, trolled on social media does start to silence people. And and I think, you know, people do start either taking themselves off or saying, you know, I'm just going to listen. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to post. So so how how you police that, I think, is is the difficult thing. I'm pleased to see the start of some fact checking. And you know to see social media starting to at least put some some warnings around things that are obviously not true being put out. Um, so that's a a helpful beginning. But certainly there's there's not enough done about you know these people that are, as my my daughter would say, haters that <laughs> just get on and <laughs> and you know post these horrible things. That I think the test is you look at some of these things and say if you were standing in front of the person you know, very much to Cherie's point, you were looking them in the eye and having a discussion. Would you say the type of things that some people post in, in their accounts? And, you know, that there's no way that a lot of these people would do that. There's something about being behind an account and sitting at, at a desk. I think exactly as Cherie says, all these text things that make people more brave, make them say things and react that, in a way that they wouldn't in person. And it's very dangerous. Absolutely. And I think I've seen this for myself when I was on social media. As a science journalist, I've seen universities, uh, scientific institutions, museums sometimes get called out for for quite obvious big public mistakes. You know, things like manals. This is something that we talk about a lot, that they they host a, an event and it will be all men or all white men on that panel um, or just tone deaf posts about kind of race or gender. Um, Brenda, what do you think are the best ways for institutions when they make these kind of mistakes? What's the best way to deal with it? So um, I have spoken to a lot of institutions in the past few months that have made these mistakes. Um, Certainly there were a number post-George Floyd that there were some that thought this is a political issue with Black Lives Matter. We're apolitical, so we best say nothing. And clearly, it's turned out that was not the right response. So there were others that thought, okay, um, we've got to get out and say something. We've got to get in front of this. And they quickly put out a statement about how supportive they they are, etc. And then you look at the organization and realize that there's no diversity whatsoever. So it comes across as completely tone deaf or, or someone that rushes something out and hasn't hasn't got any action plan and hasn't done anything. And it all just seems, you know, virtue signaling and, and insincere. However, I think the institutions that maybe said things incorrectly or weren't doing enough that then came out and said, do you know what, I got this totally wrong, we got this totally wrong, and, you know, we understand that now, and we're really sorry, and this is this is what we're going to do to recover from it. And those that take the time and say, we want to spend some time listening, you know, we really want to, we want to engage um, and when we say this at PwC, engage, discuss, um, and then include. 
And and I think, you know, there are a number of institutions that that have made big mistakes and, and have just been really transparent. They've done the listening and then they've played back sometimes some pretty uncomfortable messages that they've had. Um, one institution I worked with had a lot of diversity, but no inclusion. And what do you mean by that? So um, I always say that it's I say I and D rather than D and I because I think we've we've focused a lot on diversity, which is factual. It's counting the number of this or that or other. Inclusion is about the environment you create to allow that diversity to thrive. And I think people make the mistake of thinking we'll hire a lot of people that look diverse and we've solved it, but the actual overall dominant culture is not very welcoming and doesn't allow them to to leverage the dividend and the power of that diversity. And so, you know, you you have to if it's not working and that's the case, you need to spend some time really listening and understanding why is it? Why do people feel left out? Which people feel left out? What are we doing? How do our processes and our the way we operate, you know, exclude people purposefully? And then playing back those answers and saying, this is what you said to us. This was really difficult to hear, but now these are the actions we're going to take. When we worked with this one particular company, as I say, they, they had people from many different nationalities and cultures, different ages, etc., but it was a very dominant culture, and these people were were discriminated against, treated badly. So we played this back to the management, and then we played it back to the whole company. And people responded well that that their leadership listened and that they were so open. It it seems so obvious, doesn't it? Just listening to employees and really hearing them. And then you have cancel culture, which I don't think organisations particularly fear, but it is always there in the background, really. Um, So you both work in diversity inclusion. What is the connection here then between this phenomenon, which has become so prevalent in modern day society, so, so such a big part of culture and the kind of work that you do in diversity and inclusion? I think the issue is, is, is that everything comes back to inclusive culture, doesn't it? And I think we're, we're now so attuned to wanting to be super inclusive, I think at a high level, I think people understand the importance of inclusion from a societal standpoint and, and from a business standpoint. And I think sometimes cancel culture maybe takes it to the extreme. So as, as we talked about, I think cancel culture is, is when people vote with their feet about how strongly they feel about inclusion and they feel that something perhaps hasn't been as inclusive or is is going against you know the the kind of positive culture that that we're looking to achieve you know cancel culture is is their way of dealing with that and sometimes it's constructive when it's boycotting products or you know voting at a at a, an AGM or or doing something to say look this is how constructively I, I want you to go back and rethink it Sometimes perhaps it's less constructive when it's knee-jerk and it hasn't been thought through. What I think is also important is that sometimes shutting people out or going for that, I guess, very deliberate course of action can also be power for the course and create a pathway for organizations to understand that society, for example, will not accept XYZ treatment or, you know, being impartial in terms of different things that are happening in the world 
what I think is important here is um, cancel culture and diversity, inclusion and equity are all intrinsically linked because they are a byproduct. You know, when you do things that are actively exclusive for certain groups and those groups speak out and they want to cancel you or they want you to have accountability, that's because you're doing something that is causing harm to those communities and so on. What I think is important, um, and I personally, you know, the term council culture is something I don't actually like. Um, I much prefer the view of accountability and rework, because what I think is important here is that when we hold people, organizations and so on to accountability, what we want them to do is to listen and to rework And this is exactly what Brenda has said as well. There's no purpose for those potential people to say nothing ever again. What we want them to do is to go on a journey with us to understand why this is harmful, why this is hurting us and so on and rework and change and move forward together. Um, But again, I do think, you know, sometimes par for the course is we're not engaging with you until you take that time to do that yourself. Do you feel that all these organisations and institutions that have come out post-George Floyd to make these public statements, do you think a lot of this is just virtue signalling or do you think there's something real happening here, that there is a commitment to change? I think some of it is performative and Brenda has touched on, you know, the different bits and pieces and ways that you may notice that around, you know, posting, for example, a black square and doing nothing else. Okay, thanks for the black square, but, you know, what are you doing? And what's important here is we talk about measuring diversity a lot, but you can measure inclusion too. That's what I do. That's literally my job. Um, How do you do that? There's a science behind this and there's tools behind this that allow you to do that. So measuring inclusion is the same way as you measure diversity. What's important here is that you understand the different perspectives in your workplace. Asking questions around, do you feel a sense of belonging? Do you feel like you're being fairly treated Do you feel a higher risk of discrimination, et cetera, in your workplace? Asking these questions regularly, embedding that into your culture, but making sure that you ask protected characteristic questions, for example, to understand the different lenses that people bring to your workplace. So yes, then you can understand very, very clearly, for example, do black women feel differently than white women or Asian women and so on and so forth. Um, We have to be deliberate about this and we have to measure it in the same way. But do you think there's a danger here of treating groups as monolithic, as though all Asian women must have the same perspective or the same issues or experience discrimination all in the same way, when we know that there's so much nuance within these groups? And there is absolutely nuance. And I think what's important here is that the data point gives you something to be able to report on and check if things are working or not. But that doesn't mean, again, that that's the only thing you do. You have to do the other bits and pieces around drilling down in, spending time with those different communities, understanding how they are facing things differently in the workplace. And again, people are not a monolith, which is why whenever you're looking at your data, we've seen in the past that organizations have focused so heavily on gender without looking at all the other areas, which means that, for example, disabled women or black disabled women and so on and so forth have been forgotten because those who have benefited from these strategies have primarily been heterosexual, financially stable white women. So we need to take that approach um, that drills down in, that understands the nuance. 
Uh, one of the defences of including uh, lots of different voices, including sometimes illiberal or very conservative voices in, in workplaces and institutions, is academic freedom or freedom of speech. That we need, if we're going to have diversity of opinion or diversity of cultures, then that should include people on the right as well as those on the left. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it comes back to overall culture and really about how do we debate and how do we hear others' opinions and in a respectful way. Um, and I, I think there is a lot of room for you know diversity of thought, diversity of opinion and, and constructive debate, but I think people have just forgotten how to do it. So we, we either feel that we have to personalise it and attack the character rather than the argument – or we feel that, you know, every time you debate, it, it gets polarizing and you just say nothing and you don't debate. And we, we have we've really forgotten about the, the middle ground. So I've worked at different organizations where there were differing levels of, of constructive challenge. And one that I worked at, I can remember with, with a French colleague, we would be in a business meeting and we might have a almost shouting debate. And then we'd leave the meeting and we'd we'd go for a run together or go for lunch. And it, you know, it wasn't personal. It was about the business. It wasn't about either of us. And and I think organizations can set the tone and say, we, we expect healthy debate, um, but we don't tolerate shutting people down or being disrespectful or being hateful um, or discriminating. I mean, I, I agree with what Brenda has said here. What I think is and we've all touched on it, people are not a monolith. So we're going to get people from all different viewpoints, etc. here. What I think is important is, like Brenda has said, that we have a discussion and a debate whilst remaining respectful. Now, freedom of speech does not mean freedom from repercussions and um, accountability. And if you say something or you do things that are actively harming, discriminating and so on against other people, then there has to be reactions to that um, because again in a workplace especially and especially those in leadership positions we have to make sure that we are treating people fairly now if you are you know purposefully saying things or have mindsets that may block that down and aren't willing to have a debate on it there has to be a discussion and, and a, a respectful debate around that. I mean there are still people in the scientific community I know I've interviewed some of them who really do believe that for example women and men have different intellectual capacities that they have different biological differences between the sexes for instance which explain the gender gaps we see in certain professions in government in in and the number of professors at certain universities who feel that they have uh, evidence on their side and will defend that and use that as a way to argue that equal opportunities won't work. Um, I mean, how do you deal with that kind of viewpoint, which is still quite prevalent in certain corners, for example, of academia? Cherie? Yeah, and I, th I think we see that in, in lots of areas of, of business too. Um, people that are, I guess, against what we would describe as embracing diversity and fostering inclusion because it's something that they haven't believed will have a benefit or is needed because everything has been fine so far. Why would we change it? And I think what's important there is doubling down on the, the data that shows us that having different perspectives, etc., in the room does create better solutions and does create better work environments. What I also think is important is to really provide education on the deliberate exclusion that has taken place in society and in the past that has ultimately brought us to this position where 
yes, it's fine for some, but it's very not fine for others, where society is, you know, purposefully advantaging some folks while actively disadvantaging others. Now, I think a lot of people that have that mindset of, well, you know, it's fine, we don't need to do this, we ha- we hire the best person for the job, aren't aware of the deliberate exclusion that has brought us to this position. And I do genuinely think as well in a lot of, for example, books or allyship trainings and so on, that they focus too heavily or very heavily on the what do we do moving forward, as opposed to taking us right back to the start, understanding this historic inequality and inequity before jump frogging or jump leafing ahead. And again, that's something that I write about quite a lot um, because it's I think it's really important. And if we don't do that, we put a sticky plaster on a gaping wound. Brenda, a lot of your work involves practically increasing the proportion of women that we see in workplaces. What are the arguments that you use to convince organisations that they need to do this? Well, I think there are two things. And and I agree with all the points that, that Cherie was just making about, you know, Definitely having the data and being able to to really, you know, see things that maybe you you can't see clearly. Um, And and this applies in in the case of of the gender campaign, looking at all the research that's been done. You know, you can really appeal to people's logic around the extrinsic motivators, Um, you know, companies that have better not only gender diversity, but broader diversity in senior leadership have been shown to outperform on many financial measures, you know, their, their peers. We can't prove causation, but certainly there is strong correlation and lots and lots of research to show that. Also, we did a piece of work with the 30% Club last year about the commercial imperative. And and in in this case, it was about gender diversity, but it applies to all forms of diversity in terms of thinking on the external side. So, you know, does your marketing and and branding, um, is it inclusive? Are you actually resonating with your customer base or reaching a wide enough customer base? What about the design of your products and services? Um, Think about your, your supply chain. And the idea was to really appeal to people saying, by not being inclusive, what are you missing? But can we be sure that, uh, you know, just having more women will necessarily bring a huge diversity of perspectives? The reason I ask this is because I remember I was giving a talk in Seattle last year and a woman in the audience said to me that if the government in the US was made up of women, that um, the country would be better run, that we wouldn't see the kind of problems that they were having with Trump. But then I had to say to her, well, look at all those women who support Trump and look at all the women in his cabinet. So which women are you talking about here? You know, within this category that we call women, there is such a huge difference of opinion and some of it very much in alignment with the kind of traditional ways that people have always thought. You know, certainly I would never say just by having women, everything's going to be better. Of course not. And the whole idea about looking at gender diversity and trying to you know, push to have more equality or have more diversity is really using it as um, as a proxy for cognitive diversity, you know, diversity of experience and background. And it's obviously much richer when you start to think about intersectionality, because, you know, as, as the points were made earlier, women does not... In, 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 does not there's not one category of of woman so i've got a woman so i've got all the female perspectives that that's that's certainly never going to be true and i think you know when we think about gender we address it because it's it's the biggest elephant in the room you know women women aren't a minority 
but I think probably for too long we've we've not thought broadly enough when we talk about gender and, and really thinking much more about intersectionality. So I guess coming back to your question, of course, you can't just say we'll bring a load of women into the room and everything will be better. You can also have a number of women that have been through the same sorts of school system in the same circles as some of the men. So what we ultimately want is broader diversity. And we, we want, if we can get enough diversity from gender, from age, from sexual orientation, ethnicity, um, from a cognitive standpoint, or from a neurodiversity, sorry, standpoint, you will get cognitive diversity, which is ultimately what the goal is. Well, the other thing I wanted to ask was, um, you know, Brenda, I sit on a number of boards and I've seen for myself how frightened sometimes scientific institutions can be about um, making their opinions or their feelings about political movements or social justice movements known because they might make a misstep or get something wrong and then the wrath of public opinion and the fear of being cancelled. How can organisations deal with this? How do you strike a balance between you know, being present and vocal, but not getting it wrong. I think there's something about deciding, you know, what it is that is 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 your priority that you're willing to talk about and what your values are as an institution and what they aren't. You know, I don't think every institution needs to have, you know, a, a key point of view or a statement on every issue. But there are certain institutions where it's it's going to make a lot of sense for them to you know, come out strongly on race and ethnicity or gender or something. And, and there may be other institutions that have other areas, you know, whether it's mental well-being and things that they want to talk about. I think it's important that when companies come out with something that they actually have some substance and they feel that, that there's they've, they've got something to back up why they have a view and why they're saying it, um, you know, virtue signaling doesn't doesn't tend to work. Um, and so, so I think it's really around being discerning about what, what it is are your core principles and values and priorities and, you know, being consistent and, and as I say, being substantive. But, you know, you know, people can get angry if you don't say anything. <laughs> if you stay quiet, it can be just as bad as saying something. It depends on the issue. So I, I think I, I referenced earlier, after the, the George Floyd incident and the Black Lives Matter you know, if you're an organization that is in any country or community where, you know, you have ethnic minorities, then I think you, you, you know, have a right to and you have a, a need to have a view. Um, you know, it, it didn't seem to be as as big an issue in Asia, you know, maybe in China and some other markets and things. But certainly in, in North America and in, in Europe, um, I think organizations that didn't have a view, you know, didn't come out very well. But but that's a topic that there's a reason for people to have to have a view. And zooming out a bit more now, um, one of the dilemmas we face, of course, is that the technology companies that produce these online tools to help us communicate with each other, to, that help organisations be more transparent, at the same time do not have great records themselves in terms of gender, race. Um, they have real problems with lack of diversity. Can we trust these these huge tech giants to give us the tools that we need to make the world better. Cherie, what's your perspective on this? Yeah, I, I think what's what's really important here is that the organizations that are creating the solutions for society 
ultimately have to have more checks and balances in place. Now, that doesn't mean checks and balances in place after you've launched something. That means at every stage of your process, from your requirements gathering, your analysis, your development, your testing and your rollout, um, that you have checks in place. Does this actively work for different marginalized groups? Does it actively harm other marginalized groups and so on? And I my background is in software engineering, so I think very technically about this. But the problem is that we're rolling things out in an echo chamber and we're not considering things wider. We saw, I think it, this year has went, you know, time doesn't mean anything anymore. But at the start of this year, um, I think was when Twitter rolled out the voice notes piece, but actually hadn't considered accessibility, despite being a global platform, which meant those with hearing issues and hearing disabilities couldn't understand or um, utilize it because there wasn't captions etc provided now is that good enough no it's not and the point is that we have to start holding ourselves the people in those organizations etc to a level of accountability around why this isn't good enough and what you have to do now we shouldn't have to do that but it's very clear that we're having to keep doing this and shining that light and shining it hard when things are done and rolled out that aren't you know appropriate or meeting the needs of society as opposed to a small echo chamber. Mm. I mean, it's not just about accessibility, is it? It's also, there's also this question of um, the tools themselves, the algorithms that sit behind a lot of these technologies mm-hmm. are actually designed to make you angry, to get you to engage more and foster division in some ways. And this is something that academic researchers started to bring out is just how much psychologically they play on people's fears and kind of base emotions to make debate nuanced debate even more difficult. Brenda? Yes, that's definitely true. I mean, I think if, if anyone has watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix, you know, you, you get a real sense for exactly what these algorithms are designed to do in terms of prompting you and bringing you back time and time again, not just to the site, but to things that they think will amplify some of your beliefs or, or maybe, you know, exacerbate, um, you know, social divide and things. So, so I think there's two things here. I mean, one is when inadvertently companies that are, are writing, you know, and creating these algorithms and, and tools, when they haven't got a diverse group of people that are doing the designing and the creating, then, you know, they're missing out on those points that, that Cherie mentioned, you know, with, with Twitter and then and the voice product. So there's a piece around going back to organizations and saying, you're missing your market and you're going to get it wrong if you don't have that insight on the communities and customers that, that you're hoping to approach. So that's an inadvertent mistake. But the one I think you're referring to is is when, you know, organizations are purposefully trying to whip up, you know, this polarization and, and and for for whoever's funding them um, to to make people uneasy and create anxiety. And once again, I guess that question is, is how do how do we police this? How do we create policies um, and, and you know, public policy in something that is moving so exponentially fast? Because the wheels of policy change don't move quickly. And I think that's that's the problem mm-hmm. with a lot of, you know, all of these things on social media and the internet is that you know, our our policies can't keep up with them. So do you think that we need regulation then of the internet and social media? I think we need some sort of regulation because self-regulation isn't working. And Cherie, what what is your view on that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, the, The point is that we use social media more and more and more, not just for 
outputs, but also for inputs into how we make our decisions, how we digest media and the news. Now, with a reliance on something so strong, we have to have policies and processes in place um, around that on how we communicate what's acceptable and what isn't and how we deal with you know, harassment, discrimination and so on. Because as Brenda said, um, self-regulation just simply isn't working. So the very last thing that I wanted to ask you both is, I mean, moving forward now, what kind of tools or technologies or ideas do we need to foster in order to create the internet that we want to not fall into the kind of traps that we've fallen into over recent years? Brenda, let's start with you. We need to be thinking about looking widely and being open-minded. So, you know, I, I think one of the things is really being careful when you are using online or, or social media, using the internet, is to not just let it take you to where it wants to take you as you're researching something or you're reading up on things. You know, be very aware of how you use it and and to look at sites that, you know, maybe it take you out of your comfort zone. So as an example, um, I try to read newspapers that are of very opposing views. So um, not always opposing, but on a Saturday, I read The Guardian and the FT cover to cover to try and get very different viewpoints. Um, and I think, you know, we, we could all be doing that in sciences in particular, you know, making sure that we're listening to people that are very different from us. Yeah, absolutely. I do exactly the same. But then I'm a journalist. Sheree, <laughs> what about you? Um, I, I just really want people to be diligent. And that means be mindful of the fact that clicking a button isn't just clicking a button and it goes into space and it doesn't affect people. Um, be mindful that what you say, there is another person or group of people or society or communities that may see that. Now, consider what you're saying, consider why you're saying it and how you're saying it and vice versa. Whenever you're thinking of the people that you're following, that you're amplifying, that you're going to for experiences or media or news stories, to be mindful and consider, is that something that is giving you an echo chamber? Can you think wider? And again, always seeking context. I think that's that's incredibly important. And actually, um, I'd love to take the opportunity to ask you, Cherie, you know, you, you, like me, spend a lot of time in this space helping companies. If there were two things, and, and I certainly, I don't think there's a silver bullet that most people want to see, but if there were two things that, that were the most important to you of how people can really try to move forward in this space, what would they be? Great question. Um, I think what I would really, really suggest is one, listen and listen really intently to the people around you and the people that you do not identify with as well. Remembering that just because you have an opinion doesn't mean it's correct. And what that leads to is my second point is be willing to be wrong. I think it's really important that us as humans are willing to accept that Sometimes we've said something that we've done something and actually it's just not been right and we are prone to errors as people and that that's okay. What's important is that we accept that um, and we listen and we move forward. And I guess what I would love to ask you is the same question, especially as someone who has, you know, had all of this experience of the evolution of council culture as well. What are the, the two things that you would, would want people to do moving forward? Thanks. Well, I, I, A, I loved your answers um, and, and I would agree with them and, and really want to build on them. I think, you know, B, if I think about, you know, what are those things that, that I've seen make the most difference, 
precisely to your point about listening and you know admitting when you get things wrong, I think authenticity from leadership and tone from the top is incredibly important. Um, and if you're an organization that is trying to do everything from the grassroots up, but the top of the house doesn't buy into this, doesn't prioritize it and speak about it authentically, then nothing's going to happen. And that's the case whether you're, you know, a, a company, whether you're, you know, a university or a not-for-profit organization. You know, tone from the top is 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 important. And I think, you know, you mentioned this earlier as well, is having the data and having the insights. So, you know, like you, we spend a lot of time on inclusion insights and employee experience with our clients. And so getting the, the, the easy data, you know, the quantitative data is, is great. And then having some of the qualitative inputs as well. So that listening and understanding, because too many organizations want to jump very quickly to the solution and get on and set up a number of initiatives without really understanding what their own challenges are. And so that that listening and, and taking the time is, is incredibly important. Thank you so much. Um, good luck to you both in your work. I hope you never get cancelled. Thank you. Looking Glass is a Chalk and Blade production for the Institute of Physics. The producer is Fatuma Keira. The executive producer is Ruth Barnes. Original music by Alex Port-Felix. Sound mix by Nicola Rofast. The executive producer for the IOP is Louise Swan. And the series was commissioned by Rachel Youngman. The Institute of Physics is campaigning for more young people from diverse backgrounds to study physics. For more information, please visit iop.org forward slash limitless.